Well, one of the joys of pastoral ministry is getting a front row seat in so many of your lives to the work that the Lord's doing. Uh, I counsel quite a bit, so um, that means I get asked a lot of questions. And one of the questions that I receive from time to time is, is this question. It goes something like this, Clay, how do I, how do I really know that I'm a Christian? Um, you know, grew up in the grew up in the church, coming out, coming to coming to college for the first time, and really trying to make the faith my own. Or I have a I've been struggling with sin all my life. How do I know that I belong to the Lord? Well, that's a perennial question, specifically in the area of ministry that Rich and I oversee, this boundless ministry, because so many of you are transitioning into adulthood. You're transitioning into making your faith your own. And I remember during my own conversion, one of the most terrifying passages for me was Matthew 7. Anybody else resonate with that? Matthew chapter 7. If you don't know what that means, let me read it to you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So not everybody who just claims Christ is going to enter into heaven. Jesus himself says. It means there's a lot of self-deception around in the church. And I had had come out of a life of self-deception. And I was plagued with the question of whether or not I could really be sure that I actually knew God. And the fear for a number of years was crushing. The doubt was crippling. It felt presumptuous to me to claim with confidence that I knew the Lord because I had claimed with confidence uh, that I knew him before, but I, I hadn't really. I was deceived. And I've come to learn that this struggle to find assurance plagues uh, many folks. And even if it's not extremely pronounced, sometimes we operate with like a low-grade doubt, low-grade fears of standing before the Lord at death. So if someone were to ask you, how do you actually know that you know God? What would you say? How are you sure that you know Him? Do you have that kind of confidence from Scripture? Are you assured from from what the Bible says? Well, a number of folks, this isn't new to our day, to have this low-grade fear. Thomas Brooks, a, a Puritan pastor, he laments how many Christians don't have this full assurance that Christ intends for His saints. Here's what he says. He says, assurance is a pearl that most lack. It's a crown that few wear. Little well-grounded assurance is to be found among most Christians. Most Christians live between fears and hopes and hang, as it were, between heaven and hell. Sometimes they hope their state is good. At other times they fear their state is bad. Now they hope that all is well and that it shall go well with them forever. Shortly they fear that they shall perish by the hand of such a corruption or by the prevalency of such a temptation, and so they are like a ship in a storm tossed here and there. Thomas Brooks, a pastor many years ago, writing the same thing. Well, thankfully, Christ wants us to be sure, every one of us tonight. He doesn't want us to be like that in a storm tossed here and there. He doesn't want us to linger in doubt. He doesn't want us to waffle back and forth on the edge of unbelief. 
He inspired John the Apostle to write an entire letter about this issue, didn't he? And this whole letter of 1 John is devoted to helping us obtain a deep assurance, a profound confidence that we really do belong to God. John knows if our confidence is sure that we will produce so much fruit in this life for the glory of God, if we have deep and profound assurance, When we as believers have quiet confidence in God, when we have deep assurance that we belong to Him, John knows we will be freed to live for Christ. He's going to go on in this letter to tell us a number of things that will happen when we have assurance. One of them being, God will answer our prayers for fruitfulness. So in this letter, John's writing to deepen our assurance in in really two ways. Um, Do you remember what those ways are? Let's see, here we go. You remember what the ways are? Yell it out if you do. This is review, by the way. All right, he's deepening our assurance by reminding us of, of the gospel message, right? He gives us a message to embrace. We've, we looked at that several weeks ago. And he doesn't just do it back in chapter 1, verse 5, although he does it there, but he does it throughout the letter. He reminds us of the gospel message about Christ, a message that we have to embrace if we're going to arrive at this assurance that that John holds out for us. it's In other places in the letter, it's the word of life. He calls that in chapter chapter 1, earlier in chapter 1. And this message about Christ brings life with it. Eternal life. Christ has accomplished the life that we so desperately need. He has absorbed the wrath that we justly deserve. And He gives this life freely to all who simply trust Him. All who turn from their sin and receive Him. He reminds believers to look away from themselves first, away from their defilements, away from their sin, to Him. Look to Him alone for assurance. To look to Him for complete and total forgiveness. To look to Him for true life and the hope of resurrection. And we saw a few weeks ago in verse 5 an interesting kind of summary of this message. God is light. He is complete truth. Truth is embodied in Him and we must embrace Him as truth and not run from the exposure. The path back to God in Christ has been illumined. He has turned the lights on for how we get back to God, how the fellowship is restored But it requires us, the light exposes sin, so it requires us to own our sin and to repent, to turn from our rebellion and step out into His light. But the glory of the fact that God is light is that He doesn't incinerate us with His light. It's not stepping out into the full blaze of the sun. We step back, step into His light, and it illumines our lives by His grace. So there's a message, a life-giving message that we must embrace by faith if we're going to have assurance. And that's riddled throughout the letter. We're going to see that again and again. But he helps us with assurance in another way, too. He gives us a few evidences to consider. Or another way to put it, he gives us some signs that there's real life that's taken place, that conversion has happened. Evidences that we really do have True fellowship, real fellowship with God, which is the, that's the, the title of our series. 
John knows if we've passed from death to life, if that's really happened, if Christ has really made us alive, if we really do know God, if we're in real fellowship with God, there will be signs of that. If something is alive, it grows. That's the fundamental principle. We see this all around us. Once a baby's conceived in the womb, once there's life there, the baby will develop. You can't stop it from growing. You can't stop it from developing unless you terminate its life. The baby is alive and it will grow. It will turn into a toddler, into a child, and into a fully grown adult because it's alive. The same is true for someone whom Christ has made alive spiritually. As John says in his gospel, someone who has passed from death to life. John 5, 24. So, what are some of these evidences that will be in the lives of those who have true fellowship with God? Well, in these first two chapters, really, um, he, John gives us a few categories to think through, to consider. So, we looked at this one a few weeks ago, how we live. Right out of the gate, he tells us to consider how we live our lives. Do we walk in the light, or do we walk in darkness? Meaning, are our lives characterized by God's truth? Do we live in light of His truth? Not perfection, but do we live in light of His truth? Or do we live our lives without reference to what He said in His Word? So we might come to church on Sunday, we might have Christian friends, but the, func- the way our lives function is irrespective of His Word. That is walking in darkness. People who have real fellowship with the God of light, with the God of truth, those people are concerned to pattern their lives after what God has revealed by His light. So we consider how we live. That's an evidence of whether or not we are alive. Another evidence that we have is how we handle sin. He tells us to consider how we relate to sin. Now this is interesting. We covered this one last week. People who are in fellowship with this God of light are not, not sinless people. But we are a confessing people. We know that the light exposes sin and we don't cover it up. We don't act like we're perfect. We don't minimize or make excuses for our sin. Instead, a genuine believer takes ownership of sin, our sin. We take responsibility for it. We don't try to blame shift and blame it on something else or relabel it. We confess it. Meanings, that means we take responsibility for it and we bring it to God, fully responsible, and in return, what we receive from Him in His marvelous grace is His promised forgiveness. We don't try to atone for ourselves. Christ has already done that. Instead, we rest exclusively in, in Christ's work for us. And tonight, John's going to take us back to this theme of how we live. And he's going to ask us to consider how we treat Christ's commands. How we treat God's commands. John's going to tell us if we really know Christ, the disposition of our hearts will be toward obedience. It will be toward obedience. Or negatively, it will not be perpetual, ongoing, unrepentant rebellion. 
If we really know Christ, the disposition of our hearts will be toward obedience, not toward ongoing rebellion. And then next week, we'll, we'll wrap this up by looking at how we treat his followers. Do we love them or do we hate them? But tonight, we're looking at how we handle sin. John's going to walk us through this next sign of life. And we're going to describe John's flow of thought here under three headings. All right, three headings. And we'll call this first heading... Oh, maybe I forgot to... That's from last week, huh? Did I post the wrong, uh, wrong thing? Maybe I did. Maybe Luke's going to bail me out. All right, you're going to have to listen. Listen carefully. That was weird, because part of it was right. Um, okay. Third, first heading, ready? The assurance of obedience. The assurance of obedience. When we see that we keep Christ's commands, when we see that in our lives, we will have assurance, John says. So look with me, if you're not already there, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. For the sake of context, let's just go ahead and read um, all of verses 5 through our passage tonight. Verse 5, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. This is chapter 1, I'm sorry. Verse 5, chapter 1. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, our text for tonight. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we're looking at three headings tonight, calling the first one the assurance of obedience. The assurance of obedience. It's in, it's in chapter 2, verse 3. When we, when we observe in our lives that we keep Christ's commands, we're going to have assurance, is what John says. Verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commands. Or commandments. The ESV renders it. Here John's teaching us very simply that an obedient life, a life that keeps the commands of God, brings tremendous assurance that we actually know God. Now, I'm sure that raises some questions. So let's just 
unpack this a bit with a few observations about the assurance that God promises here. Okay? Wow. Magic. PowerPoint's back up. Luke works magic back there. Thanks, bro. All right, the assurance of obedience. Reverse it. There we go. The first, one of the first observations we can make here is that assurance is possible. All right? It's possible. Notice what John says in verse 3. By this we know that we've come to know him. John doesn't say by this we might know, or maybe we kind of know, or, ah, uh, you know, there's no, there's no doubt in his, in his mind here. He says we can really know that we know. And some of you may think, can I really know with confidence? Like, is that, is that really thing? Doesn't that feel presumptuous? Maybe, you've, maybe you're, if you were like me, that's, that's some of the thoughts that you feel. Well, the, the aged apostle John is smiling at you with fatherly love in his eyes, and he says, yes, you can. You can have deep confidence and a settled heart. And so right out of the gate, John confronts the idea that true assurance is impossible or unattainable by the average Christian. He blows it up. It is possible, John says, and not only is it possible, but Christ wants us to obtain it. Okay, so let that encourage you tonight if you have questions. So next, just another thing to observe. Just notice that assurance and not salvation comes from obedience. John is saying that assurance comes from obedience, not salvation. You're not earning your way into God's favor. We know that John's not saying that we come to know God by keeping his commandments. You see that? That would be a form of of true legalism. Not how legalism is thrown around today, but true legalism, which means I earn favor with God by my obedience. That would be a denial of Christ's atoning work, and John is not about to deny the atonement. Keeping his commandments doesn't make us come alive. We are made alive through the gospel, and that results in a new heart that wants to keep his commands. And so, assurance and not salvation comes from obedience. And as we learn to obey over time, with stops and starts, victories and failures, over time our assurance will deepen. So this means then that assurance comes from patterned and not perfect obedience. Assurance comes from patterned, but not perfect obedience. Again, we just all these all these texts are related here in this one this one theme of of fellowship with God. So if we know from last week that John is not teaching that we have to be perfectly obedient to be in fellowship with God. He's not saying the only way we can have genuine assurance is if we never disobey Christ. John does not want us to sin, he says in verse 1 of this chapter, but he knows that we still will. He assures us that Christ stands as our advocate when we do sin. Verse 2. So remember that when we sin, our first recourse is looking to Jesus and appropriating to ourselves what he has done for us on the cross. And this is the bedrock of our assurance. It's it's the foundation. So what's he saying here? How is assurance connected with our obedience? Well, he's saying that you can be confident that you know the one true and living God, 
you can be assured that you really do know the Christ of the Bible if your disposition toward his commands has changed. If you no longer suspect him, if you no longer consider him a killjoy, if you now revere Christ and respect him and perceive his matchless wisdom and esteem him for all he's done for you and you want to be like him, if you are humbled in his presence and if you know something about his kingly authority, all of this translates into a real desire, a new desire, a new ability to obey the Lord. He's stopped being your referee and he's become your savior. He's stopped becoming your homeboy and now he's your king. You know that you're not what you ought to be. You know that. But you're not what you were. Something is different inside of you. Something deep within you has changed and now you want to obey him. You don't want to ignore him anymore. You can't ignore him anymore. You're grieved when you don't obey him. And now you have new power for change. That's what John's saying. And that should give you confidence. Later on in the letter, John's going to say that Christ's commands are not burdensome. Chapter 5, verse 3. They're not burdensome. They're not like a set of weights around your neck that are meant to drive you into the ground and into despair. It's not the goal of Christ's commands. Not burdensome does not mean, there's not like equal sign easy. That doesn't mean they're easy to fulfill. But our heart desires to do them because we perceive in them, in his commands, the way of true life and true joy. Before, we were fundamentally deceived. We did not think that was the path of true life or true joy. We thought it was the obstacle to our fulfillment. But now our eyes have been opened and we see his wisdom and we see this is the path of life. We see the fruit that could result if we could just trust him more, right? If we could just follow him better, man, my life could be like that. And we want it. And if that's you tonight, that should assure you deeply, no matter how out of order your life feels, right? No matter how out of order it is in the moment. Why? Because the change of heart that you feel, that you know has happened, it didn't come from you. It didn't come from you. It came from God. As he made you alive. It came from him as a result of the gospel. And it indicates that you are alive. And this means then that our experience of assurance deepens as we learn to obey him. Our experience of assurance will deepen as we learn to obey the Lord. Now, saying it that way should, for you as believers, bring with it a massive change in your perspective. Christ has redeemed us, and he's taken residence in our hearts, and now Christ is on a mission 
to bring all of our lives, all of our thinking, all of our interactions into subjection to Him. He's laid claim of you if you're a believer. And He is going to bring you underneath His glorious kingship in your life. And He's going to teach you how to be a true human being, a renewed human being, as you were intended to be. And He's teaching us to live like the people of the new creation as we learn to trust Him and obey Him. But this means then that you should see all the various areas of your life as an opportunity for deeper relationship with Christ. For a deeper experience of His assurance. As you learn to obey Him in these areas. So, your school, your family relationships, your friendships, your job, your church life, your family back home, all of these areas are under His glorious Lordship. And they're wide open for you to press into and to learn to become more obedient to Christ. Which means what? It's greater assurance. Deeper fellowship. More confidence that you know Him. And this assurance over time grows as we learn progressively to obey. So that means that all these areas of your life are now open season for you to grow in. For you to have, experience deeper fulfillment, deeper joy. It doesn't mean you earn Christ's favor. It means you can experience more of that assurance as you learn to obey Him more in these areas of your life. That's extremely, extremely motivating to pursue Him in all of these areas. Now, if assurance grows, if it, as, we learn, as, as, uh, as we learn to obey, if assurance grows, then the corollary is also true then. Our experience of assurance wanes in times of prolonged disobedience. Our experience of assurance wanes in times of prolonged disobedience. This means that we can and often will lack assurance when we refuse to repent over known sin. It's not rocket science. I'd sin as believers. We're not zealous to repent and grow. We really won't and we shouldn't have much confidence or comfort. Is that fair? And that's a gift. That's a gift. Why? Imagine if God let us think that everything was fine while our lives burned down around us. It would not be very good, would it? If our lives are just crumbling in our disobedience if God just left us there without any conviction or weight or questions or doubts, that would not be good. Instead, He graciously removes our comfort until we confess and repent. Until we get after obeying Him by faith in these various areas of our life. That's what He does. If your life's miserable tonight, internally, consider this. You're not alone. David felt this very clearly in Psalm 32. David says that when he kept silent about his unrepentant sin, his bones wasted away, and he groaned all day long. Chapter 32, verse 3. 
It says he lived under the constant weight of the heavy hand of God himself, pressing down on his conscience, drying up his strength. Why? To bring him to repentance. That happened. God hemmed him in and crushed him until he confessed and repented. Verse 5. When he did, God opened the floodgates. Full restoration. His experience of assurance waned when he refused to repent of known sin in his life, but the Lord didn't let him stay there, did he? He pressed in him, into him in, in his love. Well, that's a bit about the assurance that comes to us through obedience, and it's highly motivating. But the problem comes when someone is confident that they know the Lord, but they live a patterned, disobedient life. Right? They live a rebellious life, a life that has patterned unrepentant sin, hidden. The self-deception is real, guys, and it is all around us. It's around ULU students. It's all around the Lynchburg locals in this culturally Christian town. It is everywhere. I worked at Starbucks for like six years. It's like everybody's a Christian. Everybody. I saw how they lived and talked. Like, <laughs> it's so easy to talk about Christ, to go to worship nights on campus, to have experiences of Jesus, and yet continue to live in outright rebellion against Him. To continue to relabel or minimize your sin and think that you have this intimate relationship with God. John wants to help us here that's his goal. He wants to help us. He's not being harsh. He wants to help us. So he contrasts two different lives with the corresponding realities that are behind those two, two kinds of lives. So we're going to call our next heading the reality behind our obedience. The reality that's operative really behind either disobedience or obedience. He's going to give us a contrast here. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 4, and see John set, set up this contrast. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But, contrast, whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. We'll talk about that. John now, in this, as he's moving in this text, takes us a, a step further now, and he helps us to understand what our lives truly reveal about us. And he starts with the negative. So, he tells us what a disobedient life reveals in chapter 2, verse 4. He says, we claim to know him, but we don't keep his commandments. We're a liar and the truth's not in us. John says a habitually disobedient life in a professing Christian reveals something about them. You see that? And it's not pretty. It reveals that they are liars. And, he says, that the truth isn't in them, meaning the truth is not governing their inner person. Lies, deception, darkness are governing their inner person. Not, not the truth, not Christ. 
Apparently, some of these false teachers in John's day believed that it didn't really matter how they lived. Didn't matter. We're not quite sure how they justified it or how they got there theologically, but they downplayed sin to the point that they could live in it, and they claimed that it didn't matter. They claimed that they weren't guilty of it or accountable for it. So you can see how the stakes are raised if you are here last week, right? It's scary today when I, when I talk to young Liberty students. They're going to they're gonna, I mean, I have these conversations. They say that we're legalistic because we focus on obedience to Christ. Have you heard that? They say we're self-righteous because we strive for holiness. They say we're judgmental when we talk about sin. Well, over the last few decades, there's a form of antinomianism, which means like you're, you're not, you don't like the law, you don't like commands, those kinds of things. This form of antinomianism has crept into the evangelical church. And thousands of professing believers have been taught that how they live doesn't actually matter. That God forgives and loves no matter what. And so, their lives continue on without repentance over their idolatry. Or their idolatry is renamed some form of mental illness. And so they're not confronted with their idolatry, and their sin remains, and their idolatry remains. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how they live. It doesn't, because God accepts me as I am, which has a ring of truth to it, right? We're accepted in Christ on His behalf, but to be transformed, to change, to repent from our idolatry, and to grow in Christ. So their lives continue on in this antinomianism within the church, without growth, without repentance. And John would say that if that's the case, they are liars and the truth is not in them. They really don't know the God that they claim to know. In fact, they are worshiping a foreign Christ. An anti-Christ, as John will say later in this letter. It's not the Christ of Scripture. It's not the Christ that John saw, that John heard, that John touched, and that John is proclaiming. And that's a scary thing. And it's all around us. Now, this isn't, again, super complicated, but it often gets pushback of like, wow, you know, like, you're judgy here, Clay, like you're but just think, think this through with me for a minute. Imagine you have a friend, and they talk all the time about how great of a relationship they have with their parents. Okay? They're so close. They know each other so well, et cetera, et cetera. Then you go home with them. Anything their parents tell them to do, they ignore it. Their parents tell them not to do something, they sneak around and do it anyway. Their parents confront, they blame shift, they evade, they get angry. It happens repeatedly the entire weekend and nothing ever gets resolved because they won't take any kind of responsibility. Then, back at school, you keep hearing them say how tight they are with their parents. Something's wrong with that, isn't it? They're, they're not, they don't have the intimate relationship they claim to have because they don't obey them. Their disobedience reveals they have no revere for their parents. They do not honor their parents. They love themselves. 
And so it's not that foreign to us of what John is saying here. If we don't keep the commands of Christ, we don't love Him and we don't know Him. That's what John's saying here. To truly know Jesus, the real Jesus, is to know His heart. It's to be restored to Him from your rebellion. It's to be humbled and sensitive to His instructions. It's to know Him intimately means to know His character. And we trust Him when we see His character. We trust that He knows what's best. And even as genuine believers, we're still going to struggle with this. It doesn't mean we're, again, it doesn't mean we're perfect in our obedience, right? Even as believers, we're going to struggle with remembering this. But this, this principle that a diso- disobedience reveals a lack of knowledge, that is helpful. When we disobey, we need to realize that we're failing to know Jesus in a way. We're failing to trust him, and we're in danger of growing suspicious of him. So, if that's, okay, you're like not drawing the connections, let me help you. Let's take anger, irritability. You get home from a full school day or a work shift, whatever, wherever you're at, and your roommates trash the apartment again after you spent two hours last night cleaning up their previous mess. They waltz into the kitchen from, you know, doing whatever they do, surfing on Pinterest or playing Madden. I don't know. Maybe Madden's old. I don't know. Whatever they're doing, they're wasting time. They come into you, and they, they're snarky, and they say, why are you so uptight all the time? You know? You just need to chill out a little bit. You know, just, just relax. And you're just thinking... You snap, right? You blow up at them, or you say something that's seethingly sarcastic. Well, what just happened? Your roommate is in sin, yes, but our disobedience is our sinful response and anger, right? Doesn't mean that they're not wrong. They are wrong to be lazy and disorganized and messy, yes. And love, sincere love, would help them see that, but not in anger. Right? Not in seething sarcasm. So we have responded to them in sinful anger. And I just said that our disobedience reveals that we're failing to know Christ. How? How in the world is that related to my outburst, Clay? Well, if I really know Christ, I'll know that nothing happens apart from his control. I know that he's sovereign. That's like what he's revealed to me about himself. And although this seems very bad for me right now, I'll know that this Christ of the Bible loves me, because he says he does in his word. I'll know that this Christ is always good to me all the time, because he says he is in his word. Even in this moment, if I really know Christ, I'll remember that he has tasked me to represent him and extend his influence, even in these moments, with an irresponsible roommate. And if I really know Christ, I'll know that he's with me in this moment. He's not abandoned me and left me. And he's here to help me. And if I really know Christ, I'll remember that what he wants for me in these situations, I'll renew my mind with that and I'll respond accordingly with patience. With a clear confrontation, if necessary, out of love for my roommate because this is a destructive behavior in their life, right? 
So do you see how our disobedience reveals a lack of knowledge of Christ, at least functionally in that moment? Tracking? So, a disobedient life reveals, if it's, if it's perpetually disobedient, it reveals that they don't know Christ. And for us, who do know Christ, we still fall back into this. We can sin, and we need to press in then to really knowing Him and trusting Him in these moments and thinking with what He would have us do. So, that's why John can say what he says next. He goes on to tell us what an obedient life reveals in the next verse, and it is incredible. What an obedient life reveals. Look in verse 5. He says, but whoever keeps his word, notice the slight change of terminology there, whoever keeps his word, sorry, I lost my place, whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Notice now that John talks about keeping his word instead of his commands or commandments. In the context, it's almost synonymous, so you don't want to make too big of a deal out of this, but this shift focuses us on a singular word of Christ, we might say, or a a central command. We're going to come back to this in just a second. Just kind of put that on the back burner. Then he says, if someone keeps Christ's word, this reveals something very interesting about them, right? It reveals the love of God has been perfected in them, is how the ESV translates it, and I think the NAS does it as well. So what in the world does that mean? Well, let's, let's quick break it down, and then we'll put it back together, and I think it'll make sense. Something, John says, has been perfected in us when we obey. And John says it's the what? Look at your text. What's been perfected in us when we obey? The love of God. Now, that phrase, the love of God, can mean either our love for God, right? The love of God. God is the object of our love. The love of God, like I'm loving God be the love of him, or it can also mean, another option, God's love for us. So we are the object of his love, the love of God, God's love. The phrase can go either way in Greek. So if it could go either way, this is a grammatical option, what do we do next? Well, we want to see if there are any clues in the letter for which way John intends this thing to go, Right? And there are. So over in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, we're going to see a very similar phrase. In fact, it's identical except for one thing, and I'll point that out. Chapter 4, Actually, I think it's in verse 12, but the context starts in verse 10. He says, In this is love, not that we have loved God. Okay, so you hear that? In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You see, is perfected, that's the same verb in our text. And here, notice, whose love is it? His love. Who's his referred to? God. So here, same phrase, it's God's love is perfected in us. Does that make sense? Nod with me if you're tracking with that. Go like this if you're not. Or flail. That's easier to see. Okay. All right. Just building this together for you. All right? So, he's talking about God's love for us in chapter 4. But that raises another question, doesn't it? How is God's love perfected in us? At least it's a question in my mind. Isn't his love already perfect? Well, yes, it is already perfect. So that, that pushes us back to the meaning of the word, right? What does the term mean? What does this verb mean? What can it mean? Well, in other contexts, this verb perfected, it can have the idea of something being completed or something reaching its intended goal. It's used that way in other contexts. And I think that's John's point back in chapter 2 and in chapter 4, the one we were looking at just a second ago. But if you go back to chapter 2, our text, John is saying that God's love for us reaches its intended goal in us when we become obedient. So God's love for us reaches its intended goal in us when we become obedient. Let me put it differently. When we keep Christ's word, this reveals that God's love has reached its intended goal in our lives. So, do you know what Christ's central command is? His most explicit word for his church, according to John. Any guesses? L is for the way you didn't expect that, did you? Neither did I. That was off script. So I'm not, not going to do that ever again. Love is his most explicit command, okay, for us. We're going to see that over and over and over in this letter. That's actually where he's going at the end of this section. That we love like he loves is his aim for the church, that we learn to give ourselves sacrificially in imitation of him. That's exactly where he's headed in this passage, and next week we're going to see that when we obey his commands, we do that most centrally when we love like Christ himself loves. So what's he saying here? We keep Christ's word. When that happens, when we learn to love like him, this reveals that God's love has reached its intended goal. God's love has has come to its climax in our lives as we're expressing it. He has loved us so that we come to reflect His love, so that we come to truly resemble Him and image Him. That's an incredible statement. It's an incredible statement. God's end, the end goal of our being loved by God is the expression of that love toward others. 
And when we obey in the difficulties of life, in that difficult roommate situation, God's love for you is reaching its intended goal as it's impacting the life of that person who does not deserve it. That's incredible. Now John rounds out this verse by affirming that this is the, the way that we, are to, that we know that we're in him. Look in verse 5. <clears throat> Almost done here. End of verse 5. By this, we may, by this we may know that we are in him, he says. It's a rounding out of everything he's already said. Now, if you're reading in an ESV or an NASB, the way they punctuate that clause shows us that they think it's pointing forward. So they think it's like pointing forward to what he's about to say in verse 6. And I think it's actually pointing backwards. So um, I think it's actually reminding us of what he just said. It's like rounding that off. When we live like this in this way, we can have confidence that we really are in union with Christ. It's another way of saying that we really are in relationship with him. We really are in fellowship with him. We really know him. And he's just, he's just kind of buttoning that up. Now, if it were me, I would be tempted to stop here, you know, if I were John just kind of writing. But John has one more thought at the tail end of these verses. And you could think of this as the exclamation point to everything he, he just said. And he underscores how obedience is not optional, but it's actually a necessary obligation to those who claim to abide in Christ. So we're going to call this the obligation of obedience. The obligation of obedience. Verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him, whoever, whoever claims that, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The final verse of this paragraph John puts the exclamation point on what he just said. And when we come to Jesus to abide in him, we enter into a discipleship relationship with him. And like his first disciples, he calls you and I to come and actively follow him. In other words, there's no middle ground with Christ. We're not able to abide and not follow him. Does that make sense? And in this case, the, the imagery John uses is the imagery we've, we saw a few weeks ago of walking. Um, John, a few verses ago, has said that true believers walk in the light. You remember that? Here he says true believers walk in the pattern of Christ. means that the pattern of our lives are, are come to reflect the pattern of Jesus' own life. And again, he's just, you can tell he's building us up to this command to love like Jesus loves, right? So that's where we're going next week. But it's, it's a life of self-sacrificing love for the good of others is the kind of life that, that we're obligated to live. And don't miss that it's an obligation to imitate Jesus. That's actually his point. That's why he lands as hard as he does here. Because he, he doesn't want you to think, he doesn't want you to walk away from this thinking that obedience is optional. The ESV and the NASB say that we ought to walk, but the original is much stronger. It says we are obligated to walk. 
John is saying it's a necessity that we do this if we're going to claim to be in a relationship with Jesus. John will not let us create a third category of maybe what's been called a carnal Christian. That's not an option for John. It means a carnal Christian just means people say it's a genuine believer who refuses to obey Jesus. They live a life of carnality, meaning disobedience. And again, do we disobey? Yes, we do disobey as believers, but not a lifestyle of disobedience. That is not, that should not, ought not characterize believers. That cannot, according to John, characterize a genuine believer. A genuine believer that does not want to follow Christ or live a life that imitates him does not exist for John. It is of necessity to obey because that puts Christ's reputation on the line if we don't. Meaning, when we claim Christ, we claim that he's laid hold of us. And when he doesn't change us, that implies something about him. Right? So John is saying, that's not an option. It's an obligation. Obedience is an obligation. So that's our, our third evidence. Um, our third sign of life. How we treat Christ's commands reveals a lot about us, doesn't it? And one of the backdoor encouragements of this is that in our just charismania today, uh, where Christian experience is elevated to the top of the food chain, um, particularly in singing, that's nowhere in this text of how we know we know God. Straight obedience <laughs> is how we know we know God. Our willingness to, to lay our lives down like he did is how we know that we know him. So in a way, that's just raw encouragement that Christian experience, as good as it is and as helpful as it can be, is not necessarily the litmus test here. It's what we know about Christ and do we act convictionally upon those things. And like all these signs, even for believers, there are areas of conviction when we hear a message like this, right? So maybe there's an area of your life that you've turned a blind eye toward, you've made excuses about, area of sin that you know you're, is hanging you up, but you won't deal with it. You might feel like David in Psalm 32 with the Lord's heavy hand upon you. So just turn, right? Don't be like the mule, David would say in Psalm 32, with the bit and bridle that the Lord has to just like yank you around to get you to repent. Repent volitionally. Turn to him in confession. Own it. Take responsibility. Remember Christ's staggering promises from last week. There's full forgiveness, full cleansing awaits a simple confession. So if you missed that message, go back, listen to it online. If your life is constantly tripped up in that sin, seek out help right here in the church. John promises you that you will experience greater assurance if you do because you're bringing your life in line with your profession of Christ. Greater joy and greater peace await you as you repent and learn to obey. But maybe you've never heard a message like this before. Maybe you've assumed that you're a Christian, but now you, you think you're not, because if you're honest, you live exclusively for yourself. Well, the point of this text is that you can come to genuine faith in Christ now. Christ wants you to truly trust him. He wants you to experience real fellowship with him. That's why he's dispelling the myth right now. 
It's because He wants to draw you to Himself. He wants to lead you out of the self-deception into a true relationship with Him, one that changes your heart and grants you a desire to obey Him. Obedience to Christ is true freedom. It's true joy and true peace. His commands are not burdensome. They are our life. If you're unsure tonight, don't hesitate. Come talk to us. We would love to, to try to help you get clarity on your relationship with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that your word would work in us the way you intend. Thank you for the, both the encouragement and the challenge tonight. Lord, we, we look at our lives and the best way to express we feel in this moment is uh, we know we're not what we ought to be. We look across the landscape at, our, at our, the various areas of our lives and we see, wow, that area needs to be shored up. Wow, I need to grow in that area. Wow, there's work to be done over here. But in doing that, we do it with hope because we know that you've made us alive and that any growth we've experienced has come directly from you because we're alive. And so if that's a believer tonight and they are weighed down, thinking about the commands and what you have, have held out for them, I pray that they would um, just see you, see you as so they would hear this message and be encouraged as they see little evidences of obedience in their life that are, that are fueled by faith, fueled by trusting you, and that they would be encouraged. And I pray that if there are those here that, that don't know you, that tonight would be the night that you would draw them to yourself. And I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.